0: I want to welcome you once again uh, to this online service Uh, today. We are continuing to try to work out all the kinks and figure out exactly uh, how to be able to communicate with you the best way we can, and uh, I'm just grateful for all those who have uh, given their efforts in this regard um, this week and to to help us be able to to record this and also to live stream it. We hope that we we get all the bugs worked out. We want to make this... uh, uh, as valuable of an experience for you as we can and for your families as we worship the Lord together, albeit remotely. Um, I don't know how all of this has affected you. I know how it has affected me and, and some others with whom I've, I've spoken. Um, for me, the sense of uncertainty, it's the sense of wondering, how long is this going to last? How long will these unprecedented measures uh, continue to last? Uh, it's the concern over when will normal ever feel normal again. Uh, when will the governmental recommendations um, and restrictions be lifted? When will this COVID-19 virus recede? When, when will we be able to meet it together again in person as we have become accustomed and as the church throughout the centuries have become accustomed? These, are, these questions and others... Have been rolling through my mind and in, in my thoughts almost continually over the last week or so. And the truth is, at this point, none of us none of us have the answers to those questions. As the metaphor goes about about these things, and obviously many others, we're in the dark. I thought about that a lot this week. I thought about the fact that we are in the dark. I thought about the confusion of of all that we are going through. Not knowing when it will come to an end, not knowing what all the ramifications are going to be. And I'll be honest with you, in the dark is not some place that I enjoy being. I especially don't like being in the dark and and being lost. That happened to me a few years ago. My family and I were living in Tennessee at the time. I was pastoring a church uh, there. Uh, My my now-teenaged daughter, Maggie, uh, was only a baby at the time. She woke up one morning uh, very sick because she had developed a severe respiratory infection. Caroline and I took her uh, to the doctor. But by the time that we got to the doctor's office, Maggie's oxygen level had dropped dangerously low. And, and the doctor immediately called for an ambulance and, and she was taken to Children's Hospital in Knoxville, Tennessee. Caroline actually rode in the ambulance with Maggie. I followed behind in my own vehicle, and and we made the hour-long trip up I-75 to Knoxville. Once we got to the hospital, they admitted Maggie, and and it was very late that same night before we finally got everything settled, and and Caroline and I talked and decided that it was probably best if I went back home to gather some things that, that she and Maggie would need to stay in the hospital. And also to check on Presley, our other daughter, who was staying with some friends in the church. When I left the hospital that night and I got down to my, to my car, it was it was dark. And I was unfamiliar with Knoxville. Um, and as is the case in a lot of cities, there were a lot of one-way streets in the downtown area. And, and And since I had followed the ambulance into the hospital, I really didn't remember exactly how to get back out and how to get... Back toward the interstate to get home and so as I drove I got I got turned around and and before long I was completely lost And by the way, this was in a day and time before Everybody had a smartphone and before Google Maps existed and before you had somebody that would talk to you and tell you which way to turn The reality was that particular point I was in the dark and I was lost and I didn't have A map and even if I had had one, I didn't know where I was To say that I was anxious and to say that I was frustrated and more than just a little bit scared, I think would be an understatement. I want you to know being lost and in the dark is never a good feeling. All of us can likely identify with that feeling in one way, shape, or form. Some of us feel that way right now because of the threat of this coronavirus. But certainly there are other reasons to feel lost and in the dark. For some of you, you may feel that way because of a health situation that you find yourself in at the moment. You've gotten some bad news from your doctor. It's put you into a tailspin. Others may be lost in the dark because of a relationship that, that you have. Perhaps your marriage is in trouble. Perhaps the relationship between you and your, someone in your family. Perhaps it's another relationship that's causing tension. Perhaps you find yourself in the dark and disoriented due to the loss of a loved one. Maybe it's your financial situation that has you lost and in the dark. And really right now, in light of of everything kind of being up in the air with our economy, none of us knows the long-term effects that this current situation is going to have. Or maybe the darkness that, you're experiencing right now is connected to the fear of what may happen, or it could be connected to the fact that you're frustrated and disoriented because all the plans that you had made have been changed because of the current crisis. My guess is, is that there are many of you out there who understand the panic and you understand the fear and you understand the sense of dread that can overcome you when you don't know which way to turn and when you do not know which way is up. Here's the real question. When these times come, and and they will come, they have come into all of our lives, and they will continue to come. The real question is this, to what will you turn? Maybe the better question is this, to whom will you turn? Is Is there someone to whom you can turn when your life has been upended and you find yourself lost and in the dark? Is there someone that you can can turn to who will lead you out of the darkness and provide you with stability in the midst of uncertain times? I certainly believe that there is, and I want to point you to him this morning. So if you have your Bibles with you there in your homes, I hope that you'll take them out and turn with me to the Gospel of John, to chapter 8. Gospel of John, chapter 8. As a church family, we have been we have been studying through a series of sermons that I have entitled, Follow Me. And in these sermons, we've been examining the various passages in the Gospels in which Jesus utters those words, follow me. And today, I want to read just one verse of scripture for you. It's a verse of Scripture that alerts us to the darkness that the world around us has and, 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 and we experience in it. It's a verse that, in which Jesus declares uh, some really significant things with regard to his identity. And then it is also a verse in which Jesus clearly states what our response to him should be in light of the situation we find ourselves in in the world and in light of his identity. I want to read for you that one verse in John chapter 8, verse 12. The Bible says this, Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Unashamedly, this morning, in light of the trouble and in light of the darkness that we find ourselves in, whether it be as the result of this global pandemic or whether it's just a personal storm that you may be facing, I want to point you to Jesus who says he is the light of the world. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, I thank you for your word and I thank you for the goodness that you have extended to each and every one of us. And though we come before you this morning acknowledging the fact that that there's so much going on in our world for which we have no explanation and we don't know what tomorrow is even going to hold. Your word has always told us that we are to depend on you. We're to look to you. Man makes his plans, but it is God who directs our steps. And so we, we come before you acknowledging that you're the sovereign God of all creation. You have, you have got everything in your hand and under your control. And so because of our confidence and our faith in you, we come before you confessing you as our God and our Savior. We also come before you this morning acknowledging our weakness and needing your help. And so we pray that even now, as we spend some time this morning studying your word, that you would help us. Encourage our hearts. Help us to see you for who you truly are. and Help us to know you for who you truly are. This is my prayer, and I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Now, it's important that we do with this particular verse the same thing we would do with any other passage of Scripture, any other verse of Scripture, and that is we need to locate it. We need to find the context into which these words of Jesus were spoken. And to do that, we have to go back to chapter 7, where we read in chapter 7, verse 2, that the Feast of Tabernacles had been going on in Jerusalem. Now, that Feast of Tabernacles was a seven-day It was a seven-day celebration, and it serves really as the backdrop for everything that takes place in chapter 7. And and it hangs in the background of what is going on in chapter 8. Most of us are are probably not all that familiar with this ancient Jewish celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles, But it was inaugurated by God all the way back in the Old Testament, back in Leviticus chapter 23. And in Leviticus 23, God instituted this feast to help the Israelites remember that for 40 years their ancestors had had wandered through the wilderness before they had finally been brought into the promised land. There are a couple of distinctives about this celebration that are noteworthy and make it different from all the other annual feasts that that the Jewish people celebrated. First of all, the seven days in which they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles, the entire Jewish nation camped out in booths. They camped out in tents, or as the name suggests, Tabernacles that were built out of branches and foliage. And, and, and they camped like this to remind themselves of the hardships that their ancestors had faced when they were out in the wilderness. And it also was so that they might remember God's gracious provision to those who had come before them. The second noteworthy distinction of this Feast of Tabernacles is that on the opening night of that celebration, four gigantic candelabras standing 75 feet tall, were lit. And, and they, were, they were placed there in the middle of the temple grounds. And each candelabra of the Feast of Tabernacles had, had four branches supplied by a, a golden bowl that was filled with 10 gallons of oil. And then wicks were stuck down inside those bowls so that when the wicks were lit, these huge candelabras would ultimately be set aflame. And they they were so large and so massive that the, the light that emitted from those candelabras actually lit up the entire temple area and could be seen because the temple was mounted on a hill. Could be seen from all of the city of Jerusalem from all around and people from miles away could see the light that was coming up from those candelabras. And as those flames leapt toward the sky, the Jews would be reminded of God's Shekinah glory. It was, he was the pillar of cloud by day and, and fire by night that accompanied their ancestors throughout their wanderings in the wilderness. And according to one who wrote in the Jewish Talmud, he witnessed this festival and this celebration firsthand, and he said this He who has not beheld this celebration has never seen joy in his life. So, as I mentioned, this is the celebration that had been going on in Jerusalem, and it had taken place for seven days, and, and throughout the week, the lighting of that candelabra burned brightly. And throughout this time, religious leaders, they praised the Lord. They, they sang songs. Musicians came and played their instruments. Everyone did that with an air of expectancy, looking to God to fulfill the promise that he would ultimately send an even greater light. He would send the anointed one. He would send the Messiah who would come and deliver his people from their darkness and from their despair. And as the people sang and they reminded themselves of this promise, they also offered sacrifices and they read scriptures, like the one that we're familiar with, particularly at Christmas time. From Isaiah 9, verse 2 The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. And these people who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. So in, in chapter 7, this is the celebration that was taking place in Jerusalem. But notice that based upon what we read down in verse 37, we read that that the seven-day feast came to an end, and, and the celebration ceased, and the massive candelabras were extinguished. In other words, another year celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles had now come and it had gone. And in the minds of the Jews, God still had not sent their Savior. The tents were all torn down and the temple went dark. Now, all of this is the context into which serves the backdrop for this magnificent statement that Jesus makes here in John chapter 8, verse 12. I want to read it for you once again. Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Now, as as we consider these words of Jesus, I want to draw your attention first of all to what his statement implies with regard to the world in which we live. In fact, those of you who have the outline that was sent out earlier this week, you'll find the first point on it there. The, The first thing that I simply want you to note is this. There is darkness in the world. There is darkness in the world. I doubt any of us really need to be reminded of that. Even though there are many good things in this world to which we could point, The fact remains that the world that we live in is a dark place. We've already discussed the fact that this COVID-19 virus has created a a pandemic and it's created fear throughout the world. We've talked about the health-related issues that some of us are facing individually. We've talked about relationship issues and financial issues, but... But we see other things in the world that remind us that this world is a dark place. We have things like terrorism and and oppression and and sexual abuse and pornography and greed and adultery and abortion and and physical and verbal abuse and false religions and those who prey on the weak and upon the unfortunate. And, and, And the list could just go on and on and on. In Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul describes those who live in this way and practice these things as being those who walk in darkness. And he says that they have their understanding darkened because their their hearts are blind. In other words, to put it simply, sinful people live in a darkened world because they have darkened lives. Elsewhere, the Bible says this, those who leave the paths of uprightness to walk in ways of darkness he talks about them as being sinners in Proverbs 2, verse 13. In Proverbs 4, verse 19, the way of the wicked is, the dark, is like darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. The prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 5, 20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. You see, what we what we have to recognize and what we have to understand right up front is the fact that that when Jesus claims to be the light of the world, he is reminding us of what we already know, which is that this is a dark world in which we live. The darkness of this world comes as the result of, of sin, and here is where that finds its connection to each one of us. You see, the Scriptures declare that all of us are sinners, and because we are sinners, the sad reality is is that we live our lives in the moral darkness and depravity. We we find ourselves trapped in in snares of immorality and and greed and wickedness and deceitfulness and idolatry and, and in deeds of darkness. But here's the good news. The good news to those who are in darkness, Jesus offers hope. And I want you to notice the next point on your outline. The second point is simply this. Jesus is the light of the world. The first point about the darkness of the world is implied by what Jesus says, but this point about him being the light of the world is explicit. He says clearly that as the light, he has come into this sin-darkened world. And the metaphor of Jesus' as light is, is a recurring theme throughout John's gospel, and really it, it, it recurs throughout all of the New Testament. In the very first words of John's gospel, in what we call the prologue of the gospel of John, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, we read that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And down in verse 4, he says, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. Down in verse 9, John goes on to describe Jesus as the true light, which gives light to every man. Later, John records some other words that Jesus said about himself. In John chapter 9, verse 5, Jesus says, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. In John chapter 12, verse 46, he says, I have come as light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. You see, not only does Jesus use this metaphor of light to describe himself. But then as we read other parts of Scripture, we recognize that the picture of him as light was what other people saw. There's a point in the New Testament when Jesus took Peter and James and John with him up onto a high mountain. And according to Matthew chapter 17, verse 2, Jesus was transformed before them. And the Bible says that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. It's as if Jesus just sort of pulled back his earthly robe and was able to see him for who he truly is. And the only way that those who saw him could describe it was that he was, he was effulgent. That's a word that, that literally means it's light taken to its extreme. It was like looking into the sun when they saw Jesus. The apostle Paul described his encounter with the resurrected Christ the same way. On the road to Damascus, Paul says in Acts chapter 26 verse 13 that at midday along that road he saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And then this same John who who ultimately penned the book of Revelation, Jesus appeared to him again after John had been exiled to the Isle of Patmos, and when he did, John describes Jesus as having hair that was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. And then John says his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Now, when you consider all of these ways in which Jesus is presented to us as the essence of light, and as the light of the world. And then when you think about the fact that when he makes this statement about himself, back here in John chapter 8, that he does so right after the conclusion of the Feast of Tabernacles, right after those four huge candelabras had been extinguished, and darkness has once again settled across the temple and upon the city of Jerusalem, Well, then you begin to realize just how significant this statement that he made actually was. You see, all of the Jews were still waiting on God to send the light that he had promised. And Jesus steps up and says, look at me. I am that light. But as the scriptures reveal to us, though Jesus is the light and though he came to shine that light into the darkened, sin-cursed world, the world and even his very own people rejected him. John chapter one, verses nine through 11 tells us that Jesus is the true light, which gives light to every man coming in the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. And then verse 11 says this, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Why is that? Why is it that those who are hopelessly lost in darkness and imprisoned in their own sin, why is it that they instinctively reject the light of Christ? Well, as we read in John chapter 3, people actually love the darkness more than they love the light. They love the darkness that ensnares them. In John chapter 3, we have some of the most well-known Words that have ever been penned, Will even quoted them for us earlier. In John 3, 16, it announces to us the greatest news of all all time because it says that the light has come. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the greatest news that we could ever declare and tell anyone. However, Jesus goes on to reveal the bad news just a few verses later. In verse 19, he says this, Light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. Verse 20, For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. This is the bad news. This is the the sad news, really, that Jesus is the light of the world and he has come into this world, which, as we have seen, is a very dark place. But rather than flocking to him, rather than coming to the light, the world rejects him and darkness remains. It is that thought that that drives the emphasis of what Jesus says next here in John chapter 8, verse 12. You see... Jesus reveals that he is the light of the world so that those who live in darkness may, may come to realize that there is hope for them. But, but here is the absolute necessary element of that hope that we must not miss. You see, Jesus clearly states that the hope that he offers is only for those who are willing to trust in him. And therefore, notice the, the third point on your outline. The third point is this. We must follow the light. We must follow the light. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The sad reality is that those who do not follow Jesus, those who do not place their faith and their trust and their confidence in him, will remain in darkness. They will remain separated from the life that Jesus has come to bring. But those who do place their faith in Jesus, those who do follow him and make him Lord of their lives, well, then Jesus says they will receive eternal life. They will be given the life that he came to bring. But I want you to consider for just a moment what, what following Jesus as the light actually means. When we, when we think of Jesus being the light, we may initially think of him only in terms of, of being like a, a source of light in a dark room. You you just think of him like Jesus is there and I'm going to just turn him on and he's all of a sudden going to shed light all over the whole room and illuminate everything within that room. And all of a sudden everything that had previously remained mysterious and veiled is now brought into the open and made plain. And while there is some legitimacy to that way of thinking, I fear that it may lead to a false view of Jesus that only sees him as a, a fixed light that you and I can sort of move in and out of at our own choosing. But once again, let me remind you that when Jesus makes this statement about himself, he's in the temple where those huge candelabra had been pushing light up into the dark sky. And that was commemorating the pillar of fire by which God had guided Israel in the wilderness. But unlike those extinguished and stationary candelabra, Jesus is a light that never goes out, and he is a light that is to be followed. In other words, Jesus is not stationary. He is on the move. And and just as Israel followed that pillar of fire in the wilderness, Jesus continues to call men, women, boys, and girls everywhere to come and to follow him. And listen, that's what it means to be a disciple, Following Jesus is what we have been talking about over these last number of weeks as we've been examining these passages where he tells people to follow him. And and it's a critical point that we must not miss. So often the terminology that is used in Christian circles to talk about our relationship with Christ is used in the past tense. We talk about getting saved. We say, I got saved as if it was some event in the past. And certainly, That is a true statement. For those of us who are believers, there was a point in the past where we confessed Jesus as Lord and we repented of our sins and God justified us based upon what Christ did for us on the cross and by rising from the dead. However, I believe there is something dangerous about only viewing our salvation as something in the past. In fact, the participle that Jesus uses here in John 8 verse 12 which means to follow, is a participle that's in the present tense and it denotes action. In other words, Jesus is not pointing simply to something that happened at one point in the past. Rather, he is pointing to something that is ongoing and something that is happening right now in the here and in the present. And it concerns me at times when I speak to people who talk about their relationship with Christ only in the past tense as though it were something that that took place years ago. Yet there seems to be nothing current in their life that demonstrates that God is actively leading them and working through them now. Please understand, to become a Christian is not like becoming a member of a club or an organization where all that is required is for you to pay your membership dues and receive a card that you carry around with you and you have to show it once in a while when you're asked to in order to prove that you belong. Rather, as Jesus says here, he is the light of the world. And as such, he is to be followed. He is to be pursued. He is to be obeyed. To follow Jesus means that he leads you and that you are in a relationship with him. It's a relationship that is ever growing. It is a relationship that is ever moving. It is a relationship that is ever advancing. And I want you to know he expects and will accept nothing less from you and from me. So what we've learned from our study today is is that we live in a dark world, and as I mentioned at the beginning, it's easy to get lost in the dark. But the message of hope that Jesus announces is that he is the light of the world. And as such, he is a light to be followed. And the good news for those who follow is that Jesus makes two concurrent promises. The first is that those who follow him will never walk in darkness. And secondly, those who follow him will have the light of light. But now listen, the good news can only be understood when you fully appreciate and understand the bad news. You see, the remainder of chapter 8, particularly after Jesus utters these words in verse 12, tell us that the Pharisees just went after him. They were aggravated by what he said. They called him a liar. They challenged him. They mocked his words. And then Jesus makes a statement to them who refused to believe that he was who he claimed to be in verse 24. He says, if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now I want you to think about those two outcomes for just a moment. Jesus says those who follow him, well, they will be given the light of life and they'll never walk in darkness. But then he also says those who do not follow him, those who do not believe in him, those who do not recognize him to be who he claims to be, well, they will die in their sins. Jesus puts it a different way in another part of Scripture. He says those over here will be cast into the outer darkness where there will be weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth because of the pain and the misery that they will experience. Now, what I want you to know is that the two realities, the two realities, those two outcomes that Jesus speaks of Makes his words here in John chapter 8, verse 12 of the utmost importance for you and for me. You see, what he says here is not just applicable to those to whom he was speaking 2,000 years ago, it's still just as true and just as applicable for you and for me today. And it is the gravity of that reality that drives me to ask you this question Have you looked to Jesus? Have you trusted in him to be your Lord and Savior? Have you acknowledged that you are a sinner who is ensnared by your sin and you are lost and in the dark? The Bible clearly states that if you will trust in Christ, if you will believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and that he rose from the dead in order to defeat death, hell, and the grave, the Bible says you will be saved. Have you done that? I want you to know that Jesus still saves sinners just like me and just like you. And all who will call upon him will find him willing and able to save them. Will you do that? I'd love for you to reach out to me or one of the other pastors here at Ivy Creek to pray with you, to talk to you further about what it means to become a follower of Jesus, I want you to know there will never be a more important decision that you will ever make than to place your faith in Jesus Christ. But let me speak for just a moment to those for whom that is your testimony. You see, many of us out there would say our testimony is that Jesus Christ has saved me and that his light has pierced the darkness of my my heart. He's brought me from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his glorious light, as the Apostle Paul says. Then if that is the case, then let me ask you this question. Are you following him? Are you trusting him? Are you casting your cares upon him, praying to him, seeking his counsel, seeking his peace, honoring him with your life. Perhaps I could ask the question another way. Is your relationship with Jesus defined largely by something that occurred in the past? Or is your relationship with Jesus in the present tense? And is it active? Listen, the scriptures are not silent with regard what it means to follow Jesus. John wrote in, in later in 1 John chapter 1 verses 5 through 7 he says this is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all and so he goes on to say if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness we lie and do not practice the truth but if we walk in the light as he is in the light We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The apostle Paul says something very similar in Ephesians 5, verses 8 and following. He says, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. In verse 11, he says, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Listen, what Paul says and what John says. Both passages tell us that there is an incongruity with one who claims to follow Christ but continues to walk in the darkness of this world. The truth is, you cannot at one and the same time live in the shadows and in the light. And all of that then leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. Those who are lost and living in the dark in living in a dark world, must turn to follow Jesus, who is the only source of true light. Those who are lost and living in a dark world must turn and follow Jesus, the only source of true light. You know, I mentioned mentioned getting lost in Knoxville late that one night after Maggie had been admitted there in the hospital. And you know, after Maggie got out of the hospital, um, The next week, I went and purchased a GPS. And I I mounted that thing up in my car and I determined that there was never going to be another time that I was going to be lost and in the dark again. And I felt like that was the sensible and it was the rational thing to do. What I want you to know this morning is that there is one who is infinitely better than any GPS. There is one who is far superior to any stationary candelabra. His name is Jesus, and he knows exactly where you are, and he knows everything there is to know about you, and he knows where you've been. He knows what you are facing. He understands your fears, and he understands your hurts, and he promises that he will save all who will humble themselves before him and trust in him. And he promises peace to us no matter the trouble and no matter the storm to those who will follow him. Jesus declares, I am the light of the world. And if you will come and if you will follow me, you will never walk in darkness, but you will have the light of life. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God and is for the people of God. Would you pray with me? We are so grateful, Lord Jesus, for your goodness to us. We're so grateful that you have come into this darkened world and that the light that you have come to bring has pierced the darkness of our hearts. I pray for your Holy Spirit to work in the lives of those who are contemplating that right now. Your Holy Spirit would bring to them the understanding that they need Jesus. That they can't trust in other things, they can't trust in the economics they can't trust in other things that's going to happen in their lives they can't trust in in anything to remain the same if anything has happened in the last couple of weeks we've all been reminded that every crutch that we've ever leaned on and everything that we thought was safe and and, and stable we've come to know that it all can go away very quickly and so in light of that I pray that you you would teach us to recognize that you are the only light to whom we can look to and I pray for those out there that have never turned to you before, for those that whom still living in darkness, that they would look to you, that they would place their faith in you, that they would trust in you, and that you would save them for Jesus' sake. And then I pray that they, like the rest of us, would begin to follow you, and that our, our relationship with you would be something that would be active, and it would be characterized by our willingness to follow you at all costs as we've been studying in your word. I thank you for this time. I praise you because you are a God that knows everything and loves us in spite of it. So we thank you and we honor you and we praise you this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.